1: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today we have Claude Biraby with us. Is that right?
0: That's right. Cool.
1: (laughs) Author, historian, and king of lockdown beards. His speciality is, wait for it, poor Alina, naval history, which is brilliant for me because today instead of necessarily banging on about how awesome and superior to everyone else the Royal Navy is and always has been and always will be, we're going to give the underdog the floor and talk about an early American naval hero, Captain Charles Stewart. So Claude, welcome.
0: Thank you very much, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here and I love History Hack. Your, your series on Band of Brothers, by the way, got me to rewatch the series after 20 years. It was phenomenal but you know there's so many contributions to history that history hack is making and I think the most important is that I should never stick snow up a chicken's bum. After oh, the you heard the, the story. down the
1: pub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know,
0: poor Francis Bacon, you know, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: it must have seemed really funny at the time. But like I said, apparently <laughs> the chicken haunted the house. And I like to think that the chicken was like, yeah, take that, you git. The people going down. Um, but we're here today because you're going to give us our first bit, really. We're going to touch on it, of the 1812 war, aren't you?
0: Yeah, am. One of the key figures of that war is Charles Stewart, who had one of the longest careers in U.S. naval history from 1798 to 1861. One of the real unsung heroes of, of U.S. naval history. But here's somebody who saw George Washington, uh, you know, he was at the knees of George Washington in the 1780s. And then he's uh, one of the pallbearers at Lincoln's funeral. So he, he knew most of the presidents. He had served under most of them and it's, it, he's one of those fascinating figures. I, I think that uh, we don't know that much about him in pop culture like we would with others, because when you think about it, Nelson and D- Stephen Decatur on our side died tragically. They, were, they died, well at least Nelson yeah. died heroically. Decatur is killed on the fields of Bladensburg uh, by a musket ball from, uh, from a duel. So I think one of the, one of the issues with Stuart is that uh, he faded away. He outlived most of his peers. He outlived most of his junior officers. He outlived almost all of his ships. So there really wasn't that legacy. He sort of faded away instead of going out in this, this blaze of, of glory, if if you will.
1: I mean, and you are a passionate U.S. Navy man. We should have mentioned, did you say you were the director of the museum at Annapolis?
0: I am. I have the pleasure and honor of being the director of the Naval Academy Museum. It's the oldest Navy museum in the country, in the United States, and one of our our uh, pride, uh, pride and joy here is the British Dockyard Model Collection. Our entire second deck is devoted to about 50, 50 British Dockyard models, including the oldest one in the world. It's 350 years old now. But if you really want to get a sense of, of British naval history, rural naval history, this is a pretty good place to come. In fact, I think we now display more than any other museum in the world. I think Greenwich has taken a lot of theirs offline. So we're very fortunate and we really try to showcase those as well as a lot of our trophy flag collection. Uh, yeah. Back in 1849, President of the United States issued an executive order that all flags captured by naval forces would come to the United States Naval Academy. So that's why we display uh, the uh, the Royal Standard, which was captured at the Battle of York, now Toronto, Canada, during the War of 1812, we have the ensigns from the Java, the Guerriere, et cetera, probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 British warships.
1: It's outstanding. I am already desperate for lockdown to end, so I can come and have a look at this stuff. Let's talk about Stuart. Let's talk about this hero. Um, he has a rough start, doesn't he? It's inauspicious beginnings. What was his background? And tell us a bit about his early years.
0: He was born in 1778 in Philadelphia. His parents were Scots-Irish immigrants. Uh, One was from Belfast. I understand that her uncle, his mother's uncle, was the Lord Mayor of London. I've never been able to figure out which one he was, however. His father dies when Stuart's very young. His stepfather is one of George Washington's guards, and that's why he meets George Washington. But his mother sends him to the local Episcopal Academy, which still exists in Philadelphia. And here is a really fundamental point in his history, because he meets kids his own age, like Stephen Decatur, naval hero, Richard Somers, naval hero from the Tripoli War, uh, Richard Rush, who goes on to become one of our most uh, famous ministers, uh, he goes on to be a minister to the U.K., so when he's 12 years old, however, he goes to sea as a, a cabin boy on an indiamen. He's plying the West Indies trade route. And by 19, he's commanding his own merchant ship. It's at this time that he then gains a commission in, in the United States Navy. In 1798, there is the creation of the Department of the Navy. But in anticipation of that, Stuart gets his commission a month before, not as a midshipman, but as a lieutenant, because of his experience commanding his own merchant ship. So Uh, I
1: guess there's no time, is there, to work certain people up to that rank? You are just going to have to promote straight away.
0: There there really is, because the Navy essentially went away after the American Revolution. We sold our last warship, I think, in 1785. So for, for the better part of a decade, the United States is without warships, effectively. In 1794, there is the Naval Act, which helps establish with Joshua Humphreys the construction of the the first the six frigates as they they call them and this is really what propels us in 1798 we're really geared to fighting the Barbary states because they have been attacking our merchant ships but it's really for another reason that that we use these ships in war and that's the quasi-war.
1: Yeah so this is his first war experience isn't it so what's Stuart's role in this?
0: Sure now this was an undeclared war and I'm, The United States tends to get into a lot of undeclared wars. We haven't declared war since 1941. Uh, So I guess we haven't been in any conflict since then. Uh, By by order (laughs) of constitution, Congress is required to declare war. It hasn't happened. It's fought entirely at sea, mostly in the Caribbean. It's known as the War with France until the 1930s. The reason the name changes is because Captain Dudley Knox, a naval historian, presents all the letters compiled from The war with France presents them to President Franklin Roosevelt and he crosses out the title and he puts in quasi war. The reason why is because at that time Lend Lease was just beginning, he was in a quasi war with Germany already. You know, we were still a couple of years away, so that's why he really tries to get this idea out. The when the King of France is overthrown, the United States decides that it's no longer going to pay its debt for the American Revolution because it's simply a new government that it owes no allegiance to. France starts attacking merchant ships. In April of 1798, we have the XYZ Affair, in which French agents try to bribe U.S. diplomats to continue negotiating. Well, this throws the population into a tizzy. There are cartoons all over the United States written about this. Now, the Quasi War is important because, first, this is the test, first test for the U.S. Navy in its super frigates. They had a different construction. So ships like the Constellation defeats two French frigates, the Jean and the uh, La Vengeance. And during this time in the Caribbean, Stewart is the fourth lieutenant aboard the USS United States under John Barry, who is considered one of the two fathers of the United States Navy, along with John Paul Jones. And I would argue he's probably a more, more important figure as a direct father, if you will. The first officer is James Barron. We'll talk about him later. But also midshipman Decatur and Summers. So in this USS United States, we see this, it's a very, uh, uh, it's not nepotistic, it's a very incestuous Navy, Mm -hmm. because when you think about it, Barron would lose the USS Chesapeake to the HMS Leopard in 1807. During that court-martial, Stephen Decatur was on it and condemned him for five years not to be in the U.S. Navy, so Barron misses out on the War of 1812. 1820, Barron and Decatur fight in a duel. Decatur is killed. Barron is, uh, has a court martial. Stewart is the president of the court martial, which bans him for, again from the Navy for three years. In 1824, when Stewart is himself is court martialed, Barron is the president of the court. So we see this, this thing happening again and again in a very small Navy. But during the Quasi War, Stewart then becomes commanding officer of the schooner Experiment. He defeats three French ships. Actually, he thought the third one was French. It actually turned out to be British, but he gave them assistance and you know, repaired their damage. The second ship that he had defeated, the Diana, had had the French General André Rigaud aboard, who was escaping from Haiti. So he keeps coming in and out. He's almost like uh, a really good Navy Forrest Gump, in where he's touching lives around the U.S. Navy, but really in our international relations. And it's at this time that that Bear, I think it was Barry who said, "You know, Stuart is better commanding than when command did." And I always wanted that on my Navy fitness report. And I think that would probably <laughs> been appropriate. It would have been better than, uh, you know, he tends to rage against the machine, which uh, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> so you mentioned also the Barbary Wars as well. So he's involved in these again. What are they, and how does he play a part?
0: Sure. There are two Barbary Wars. The first one with Tripoli is from 1801 to 1805. The Barbary states are demanding tribute from the U.S. They are capturing ships. They are demanding ransoms and an order uh, for them not to attack. They are basically extorting the U.S. government. And I think at one point in George Washington's administration, it was about 8 or 10 percent of the federal budget that was going straight to Tripoli as, as part of this extortion plan. So obviously the biggest problem is is Tripoli. Uh, The Bashaw of Tripoli, Yusuf Karamanli demands more tribute in the fall of 1800. Thomas Jefferson becomes president in 1801, and he wasn't quite as likable as the character in Hamilton. Uh, He refuses to pay tribute and sends the first of three squadrons to deal with Karamanli. The first two under Richard Dale and Richard Morris, mostly uh, ineffective. They, They didn't have the right orders with them. They didn't have the right motivation. I think it was Morris who brought his wife aboard so it would have been a little dangerous for him to uh, given him second thoughts to conduct some uh, naval warfare against the Tripolitans. It's really the third squadron under Commodore Edward Preble, after whom this building is named here at the Academy, that in the summer of 1803, he begins the blockade and mounts a series of attacks. His officers, the ones who are junior officers, commanding ships. Stewart is now commanding Siren. He's 24 years old. Decatur is commanding a ship. All of these become known as Preble's Boys. There's, it's sort of like Nelson's Band of Brothers. And this is the new generation that will uh, command larger ships during the War of 1812. So Stewart, CEO of the Siren, the USS Philadelphia runs aground in October of, eight, of 1803 under William Bainbridge, literally the most incompetent, worst Navy captain in our history. He's <laughs> lost four or five ships he couldn't get his ships underway. He, they weren't prepared. He has an entire history of this, and they still give him a command. And even today, there's a ship, a, a destroyer named the USS Bainbridge. I wish I could have fought that. It's the worst name in history to have for our <laughs> ships. You might as well
1: fire on it yourself.
0: Well, you know, we might as well just call it the USS Incompetent. You know, and <laughs> it was funny because when the, the Decatur was the, sorry, the Bainbridge was the ship that had the, the SEAL sniper aboard that took out the Somali pirates mm. back uh, during the Mariscal, Alabama episode. And CNN had called me, and I, I refused to, to answer the questions. But they brought somebody on and said, "Oh no, Babers was a great pirate fighter." And I was like, "No, he he lost his ships. He <laughs> gave he basically gave one of his ships, the George Washington. Uh, so he he gave over sovereignty of the ship, where you have animals and treasure tribute being brought up to uh, to uh, the Ottoman Empire. So Stewart is part of this destruction of the Philadelphia." Decatur is the tactical officer along with about 70 officers. And when they destroy the Philadelphia, Nelson is said to have uh, was said to said uh, most, it was the most bold and daring act of the age, which is pretty significant. It's not written anywhere. We think what happened was he told that to Hardy and Hardy uh, 20 years later meets with Stewart. And so that's where we think that Stewart gets the idea. Now, it may have been also an issue of timing, because Stewart wanted that mission. That's the mission that makes Decatur a, cap- a full captain at the age of 25. Stewart had the same idea, but got to Preble's ship just a few minutes late, so his old friend, Steve Decatur, got the mission. I think that's another factor in why we don't know as much about Stuart. He missed a couple of key opportunities. And then, he, of course, he's there in the op- operational command when uh, he, ha- he leads the first amphibious raid outside of North America under fire. Of course, John Paul Jones had landed in the UK. That's the first one, but he was not under fire. And then in September, uh, the Intrepid, which was this ship that Decatur had used, is now commanded by his friend Richard Summers. It has 100 barrels of gunpowder, 150 charge shells. Its idea is it's been made into a bomb catch. It was supposed to go into Tripoli Harbor and destroy as many ships as possible, but you were supposed to get the crew off. The crew did not get off. Uh, they're all killed, and so this is the first time that Stewart has lost one of his his close friends. You still see this today. The remains of some of those crew members are in Tripoli. There's a cemetery. It's either called the Italian Cemetery or the Foreigners Cemetery. And former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta visited there several years ago. And by the end of the war, Stewart's experience had gained him his third command of USS Essex, was which was one of the light frigates that we had.
1: I love this. This is brilliant. So, but that, the war of 1812 is his big moment, isn't it? Just briefly for um, all of us, because the, the thing we all like to talk about is the White House and stealing the president's dinner <laughs> and all of that. But why is there a bygones, war in 1812? Bygones, well, a- Yeah, bygones, bygones. We're friends now. Um, yes. Why is there a war in 1812?
0: The, it's, it, we call it free trade and sailors' rights. The issue primarily was impressment And when you look at it, at the negotiations that were happening, the the first incident that happens that really propels the U.S. in popular opinion against the British is that Chesapeake episode where it's defeated by the Leopard outside of Norfolk. Essentially, uh, Barron has a a couple of people aboard who may be British citizens. He does fire one shot just before he surrenders, just to say he fired a shot. But it was one of those wars that simply shouldn't have happened. the the british were already negotiating with us but it was it became a matter of timing so that by june we had declared war before we got the latest offer from the british government and at the beginning of the war by now he's wealthy stuart has had pro- prize money from the captured ships he was a merchant when he was without orders from 1807 to 1812. And he builds this estate in Bordentown, New Jersey, which is midway between New York City and Philadelphia, which, which is, becomes important with his marriage and Joseph Bonaparte. So Stuart is there at the beginning of the war. And what happens is Albert Gallatin, the Secretary of the Treasury, says, we have 16 ships. Let's just put them up on the ways in New York City. We've got to protect them. It's They're just too expensive to lose to a thousand British warships. Well, mm-hmm. the bottom line is the The British were engaged with the French. We were, you know, a snack between meals, uh, as it were. So they weren't going to invest that many people, at that many ships off the coast. So Stuart comes up with this plan. He goes to the Secretary of the Navy. He then goes to the President of the United States, James Madison. He said, "Here's, here's the deal. Our ships, pound for pound, are just as good as the British ships. Our sailors are just as good what we need to do is send, disperse all of our 16 ships around the Atlantic and around the world to force the British away from U.S. waters and to force them to fight elsewhere and protect merchant ships. It's almost like in uh, Master and Commander, you know, the, the uh, story of Porter, sorry, the real story is Porter of the Essex goes to the South Pacific to attack British whaling interests. Well, yeah. what happens in Master and Commander, it's it's you know, the French and the British are fighting, but it's essentially the same story. So he convinces them, and that's why uh, in, at the end of 1812, he's now in command of the Constellation, which is at the Washington Navy Yard. There's a big ball. The president is there. The secretary of the Navy is there. And all of a sudden, this midshipman, the son of the secretary of the Navy, comes in with this flag, and it's from HMS Macedonian, which has been defeated by USS United States under Stephen Decatur. They roll out the flag and the president says it's to uh, Stuart that you owe your naval victory because he he came up with this idea of fighting the the British. So I think it's important that he takes command of, of Constellation, goes down to Norfolk, where he is caught. Norfolk is just at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, and he's got to now face Admiral Sir John Warren's squadron. It's a superior squadron, at least five ships, and he can't break out. So he goes into Norfolk. I think this is, again, one of those unheralded uh, parts of the War of 1812. The British could have captured Norfolk at that time, but what he does is he places the constellation in the channel and he has 14 gunboats and he lines them up in a chain. He's connecting all the ships across the channel. He builds out these booms around the gunboats and the constellation. So the colonel looks like a porcupine so you can't be boarded. He's removed the masts of the Constellation. He sealed up the main gun deck ports. He's lightened the load of the ships so that when the, uh, if boarders were to attempt to come onto the Constellation, they would hit this curve of the hull, and they wouldn't be able to grab onto anything. So they tried three times to attack this small channel. They were unsuccessful. So I think that's a very important part of the War of 1812 And while he was commanding Constellation.
1: And then in 1813, he takes command of the USS Constitution, and this is the big one for him. Tell us about this ship.
0: The Constitution remains the oldest commissioned warship afloat in the world. It is not the oldest commissioned warship. That's, of of course, Victory, but Victory is, is permanently dry docked. Constellation was part of the Humphreys super frigates. Joshua Humphreys in the 1790s came up with a plan. And fortunately, there was no Department of the Navy or Secretary of the Navy or bureaucracy to stop this plan. He just went to the Secretary of, the war, of war, who didn't know anything about shipbuilding, and said, oh, gosh, that sounds like a great idea. And his <laughs> plan was this. Well, first, we're going to make the hulls uh, a little different. We're gonna use live oak from our plantations, and that's why there's a strategic reserve in the Southeast United States of the, the one of the densest woods in the world. So he's able to bring these, so if you're firing a carronade from a British warship, for example, you're not gonna penetrate the hull, and that's that's why this will eventually be known as Old Ironsides. He designs it with these diagonal riders, and what these do is it allows you to lengthen the ship and to prevent hogging, and hogging basically uh, when you're looking at the ship, if there, it, it might bow along, along the keel because of the water pressure. One of the problems with that is it makes the ship slower uh, if you have hogging, but also you can't put as many guns aboard or heavy guns. So now the Constitution not only has this incredibly strong hull, it now is faster than any other frigate. It is heavier than any other frigate. It is now carrying more long guns than any other frigate. The British at this time were still primarily using the 38-gun frigates, things like the Minerva. Now, they're worth 44s and other ships in the fleet in these six rates of ship. The Constitution itself was rated a fifth-rate uh, ship. It was, uh, But most of the time, she carried 50 guns. So the British were actually very correct when they said that they fought a light ship of the line, because of, of 50 guns would put you at a fourth-rate ship in, in that parlance. So... The, sh- the ship itself always had an advantage over the other frigates that it faced during the war, the Java, the Guerriere, et when he gets under, Before he gets underway in 1813 with the Constitution, he gets married to Delia Tudor, and that, before he leaves, she says, bring back a frigate, and very cockily he says, mm-hmm. I'll bring back two, which he had always tried to do throughout his career. He was always trying to cap- get two ships at the same time and never figured out why. So that's a bit about the, the Constitution itself. The um, ship, again, had, had served under Isaac Hall and Bainbridge in the two. And he gets underway, and the, the problem, he's looking for a convoy. The first time, there are two incidents with Stewart and the Constitution. The first time, he gets lucky. He had a defective mainmast, and he's chased in the northern Atlantic by HMS Tenedos and the Juno, both 38s. He makes it into Marblehead barely by basically dumping everything he could, including tens of thousands of gallons of alcohol, which probably made some really good fishing for the Bostonians that year. He is able to make repairs, uh, but now he's got another squadron, the Acosta, Leander, and Newcastle, looking specifically for the Constitution. I think it's important to note that once the the first six months happened in the U.S. War of 1812, and all of these single-ship frigate actions occurred, the British said, the Royal Navy put out an order that said, if you encounter a U.S. warship, a frigate, make sure you have at least three ships with you to, 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 defeat, to uh, defeat it. So he uh, leaves Marblehead, and now he's operating on, off of Europe. He's off of Finisterre, Spain. and In January of, of uh, uh, 19, sorry, uh, 1815, there's a German ship, and it reports on the Treaty of Ghent that's been signed and cheers erupt on the Constitution. And he basically shuts them all up. He said, what are you talking about? And I think this is the two, one of two important episodes where Stewart understands the Constitution the document, not only the Constitution of the ship. In 1805, after the Tripoli War, Commodore Rogers called all of his squadron commanders around and said, I'm also going to attack Tunis because they've been a problem. Does anybody have a problem with it? And Stewart raised his hand and said, well, You know, the Constitution says only Congress can declare war, not even if we had an order from the president could we do so, so it would be a violation. They didn't attack. And as a result, Jefferson writes that, thank God, he had somebody in his Navy who understood the Constitution. Now, when cheers are up on the Constitution in 1815, they said the war is over. He said, no, you don't understand. According to the Constitution, once a treaty has been signed, it has to then be ratified by the U.S. Senate. We've received no word so we're going to continue fighting. Mm. And they're all like, wow, okay, let's, uh, let's see what we can get. Uh, so that's why the fighting continues. On the 20th of February, he engages the Cyan and Levant. He had both, he had outclassed them both, but really uh, his maneuvers and backing the ship, etc., is is really one of the classics. And in a very short period, he defeats them both. Uh, unfortunately, during the first broadside, a couple of men are killed, including two jaguars. I'm not sure why the jaguars were on board they were probably you know trying to escape francis bacon and any other british experiments i'm not sure <laughs> but when he gets back to the sh- he's on his ship and he goes down to his cabin where the two captains are waiting for him Captains falcone sorry falcon and douglas and they're arguing about who lost the battle and stuart is getting really upset about this he said would you just shut up and finally he just says fine go back to your ships i'll give you some space We're going to engage again. The results will be the same. And then they kept quiet until their courts martial up in Halifax, I guess. So after this battle, he now has two prizes, Levant and Cyan. He goes to the Cape Verde Islands to resupply. It's a neutral area. However, out of the fog comes Sir George Collier's squadron. Stuart immediately cuts all the chains, gets the ships underway. Levant falls back. It's recaptured. But I think this is an extremely important issue. It is now 1815. Stuart has never lost a battle. He's never lost a ship, unlike most of the others. In fact, USS President under Stephen Decatur is captured and becomes HMS President. So when we look at his legacy, we see he's probably one of the best ship captains that we ever had. I I liken him to uh, Thomas Lord Cochrane, who he later meets. Now, Collier has to apologize because they say, well, how, how do you lose three ships that are at anchor and you're coming out of the mist. And he just said, well, it was a variety of untoward circumstances that prevented me from coming up on the American ship constitution. So that is, that is Stewart's history with with the constitution.
1: It's brilliant. Tell us about his congressional gold medal.
0: for their actions, primarily during the War of 1812. There were some during the Tripoli War. We have some here on display at the Academy's Museum, in fact.
1: So this is before one... the Congressional Medal of Honor exists, is that right? Yes,
0: that's yeah. correct. So if you were the captain of the ship, you would receive the gold medal. If you were senior officers, you would receive silver medals. And if you were more junior officers, you would receive the bronze medal. It's very much like the, the Olympics. So we have a number of them for Decatur, uh, for Hall and Bainbridge as well. And those continue to exist. We know where almost all of them are at this point.
1: I love a bit of smart on History Hack. We're just, we're famous for it. Yeah, you've listened to Down the Pub, you know. Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I love it.
1: Is it true that his wife had an affair with Napoleon's brother?
0: That is the rumor. So here's the story on Delia Tudor. I consider her the bad Elizabeth from Poldark. You know, the, <laughs> she, she's well-bred, she speaks languages, she plays the harp, in this case Delia played the piano. Uh, Delia knew Spanish, Italian, French, Portuguese, uh, she knew some German. But she was from one of the more prominent families in the United States. Her father, William Tudor, was a, a protege in the law firm of John Adams, He uh, later becomes, during the American Revolution, the first judge advocate. In fact, he's the one who hands Washington his commission. He, uh, one of her brothers, Frederick, becomes the Ice King, and he's known for basically taking ice out of Massachusetts and Maine and delivering it, having uh, things delivered to India. And in 1797, she's actually presented with the family to George III. And when he hears the name Tudor, he says, what, one of us? Uh, which is why that I name their divorce chapter uh, Tudor versus Stuart, the Second War of the Roses. Uh, a decade later, she's presented to Napoleon. They spend a couple of years uh, trying to find a suitable uh, nobleman for Delia. And now, when she comes back to the United States to avoid the, war in, uh, avoid the war in Europe, especially in the UK, she meets Stewart. Her brother had said, "This is the guy. This is a, somebody who is prominent. This is somebody who will." have a place for himself and for you, and he's got a lot of money. Well, her brother-in-law, Robert Hollowell Gardner, who was related to Admiral Benjamin Hollowell Carew, said they felt, she felt a repugnance towards Stuart at the very start, and that never was a match more ill-sorted. He said that they quarreled on the first night of their marriage, and the more they became acquainted, the more distasteful they became to each other. So it was not a very good beginning. The war goes on, uh, he returns, he has this incredible estate in Bordentown, and who shows up but Joseph Bonaparte, the deposed <laughs> king of Spain. Now, there was, a, there was a story that said that Napoleon had been asked that if he were to be exiled to the United States, where would he go? And he took a map and he looked, at, he saw Bordentown because it was at the end of a stagecoach from New York, midway to uh, Philadelphia, which had water, so he wanted to get the news as, as quickly as possible. Mm. So when Stuart gets underway in 1817 for three years to the Mediterranean, he, he returns. And now Delia loved to, have, loved to be part of any social event, any party. And of course, Joseph Bonaparte, who's known as the Comte de Souvelier when he's in the United States, is throwing these massive parties in Hordentown because it's the summer home of all the rich Philadelphians, mm-hmm. at least at that point. So there are rumors about Delia, because when Stuart returns, most of his belongings had been sold. She, had, she needed more money. She was going through money like it was nothing. So started selling his things, his furniture, his clothing, just to be part of the social culture. So she starts borrowing money from, from Bonaparte as well. So that's how the rumors start that she's spending so much time. He ended up having a mistress here as well and uh, having a child with, with the mistress. His wife never came from, I think she stayed in Belgium for the time that he was exiled here to the United States. And even during the divorce proceedings a decade later with Stuart, it came out that uh, you know she denied borrowing any money from Bonaparte. And she said, well, who did you hear that from? And the lawyer said, well, Bonaparte himself. So <laughs> she, was, uh, she was a bit of a problem for Stuart. In fact, yeah, through, throughout the next decade,
1: if my co-author Holmes was here he would make a very piffy hilarious comment about Frenchmen and other men's wives at this point but uh, let's not let's not we can think it but uh, move on right so going back to what we're here to talk about which is a naval career after the war of 1812 which mm-hmm. goes on for longer than that obviously Stuart where does he go so he serves in the Mediterranean and in the Pacific doesn't he
0: Right, and this is important because after the War of 1812, it's the first time that U.S. squadrons are assigned overseas during peacetime operations. So now for the first time in 1817, Stewart takes the first squadron under the USS Franklin, one of our first ships of the line, the 74 gun. And he spends a couple of years there. And it that's important because he's conducting diplomatic missions for the first time for the Navy. And his junior officers are important because one of the legacies of Stewart are the officers that he trains. So during this three-year period aboard the Franklin, there were names like Farragut, uh, Porter, uh, David Dixon Porter, uh, Franklin Buchanan, who becomes the first uh, superintendent of the United States Naval Academy, becomes the first and only Confederate general, sorry, Confederate admiral during the Civil War. Samuel DuPont, who becomes an admiral. And when you look at all of his junior officers during this tour, they all become the commanding officers of squadrons, not only during the Mexican-American War, but during the Civil War. He is a bit of a hardliner. In fact, it was one court-martial of a marine that occurs, and he sends his a note to the commanding officer of the ship, who's the president of the court, say, just make sure that you conduct this on the ship. Well, the first day's proceedings were on the ship, and then the president decide, sorry, the president of the court says, let's go to you know for the second day, let's go to this hotel to deliberate and have some pints. Well, the problem was they come back to the ship. They rent, give the, the uh, proceedings to Stuart, and Stuart said, this is completely illegitimate. I told you to do it on the ship because when you do proceedings on shore, it's not sovereign territory. A court-martial has to happen on U.S. territory. So he basically eliminates it. He They fight him. They send a letter to him saying, you know, you're wrong, sir. So he basically fires all of them, and he sends them all back to the United States. The entire commanding officer corps of his squadron is sent back on the USS Guerriere, and then they apologize to the Secretary of the Navy, saying, oh no, we were wrong, we're really sorry about that. On his way back, he hears about Decatur being killed, and that's when he goes on Barron's court martial. When he returns to Bordentown and he finds Delia having spent all of his money and having, spent, having sold all of his goods, he decides that he's taking another trip, three years to the Pacific, along, he's taking the East Franklin again, but this time he's going to take Delia. She is not amused. She does not <laughs> want to spend three years on a ship, and they've got the kids. And he had to build an extra uh, part on the, the main gun deck that could house Delia and her maids. So now they get to the Pacific, and his job is to maintain strict neutrality because, again, at this time in the early 1820s, you've mm. got all these South American revolutions happening under uh, Simon Bolivar, under uh, Bernardo O'Higgins, etc. So his job, maintain neutrality and protect U.S. whaling interests, and whales, whaling is really becoming a major uh, part of the U.S. economy, specifically in the Northeast at this time. So he thought it was going to be, you know, an easy three years. Well, the problem was at one point, in about 1822, uh, he's advised when he pulls into a port in Peru that there's been a Spanish royalist spy aboard. And he said, how did the spy get aboard? And they said, oh, we thought you knew that Delia brought him aboard. So <laughs> Delia had been dealing with Kitty Cochran uh, at a party, and Kitty was boasting about something. And so we think Delia may have wanted to one-up Kitty Cochran because again, Thomas Lord Cochrane was commanding officer of the uh, Chilean Navy at this point.
1: So, <laughs> I just a complete pain in the oh, arse. Isn't well, she? When,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, when she was on shore, it was even worse because if there were officers around, she would reach into their pockets, grab any money, and distribute them among any people, local people, you know, <laughs> as if she was generous. So eventually, Stewart had to assign one of his officers to follow her to see who was, who, was getting, who was giving her money so he could repay his officers. It was pretty bad. They started calling her La Comedora, uh, And so as a result of this assignment, when he hears about this, he refuses to talk to her for the remainder of the voyage. We're talking about a year. They get back, and he's court-martialed for breaking this strict neutrality. And he's trying to explain to them the situation with his wife. She refused to testify. She goes up to her relatives up in Maine, uh, the estate up there, Oakland's, and she refused to testify on his behalf. So eventually he's exonerated in 1825. uh, But he decides that's it. It's divorce time. So he gets pretty good divorce (laughs) lawyer, but she comes to Washington and because she had, she was the the daughter of William Tudor. She goes to John Quincy Adams who had been president at this time, uh, Oh no, he was still president at this time. Yeah, he no, he was president. And she goes to Daniel Webster, one of our greatest <laughs> politicians in 19th century, just to try to get them to defend her, uh, defend her against Stuart. It is a bloody massacre, and again, that's why it's called Tudor versus Stuart, <laughs> Second War of the Roses. <laughs> they do divorce. Fortunately, she continues to go by the name Mrs. Commodore Stuart for the rest of her life.
1: I'd give her the name just to get her out of my face, to be honest, wouldn't you? (laughs) God love her. Um, I'm sure sure she's got her side of it as well. But uh, yeah, that sounds like an absolute nightmare for both of Well She she did
0: have her own side of it, but even her relatives knew that she was absolutely lying and bonkers because when she was up at Oakland's, she was spending all of their money too. So she she was just carrying the, the debt burden wherever she went.
1: Anyway, let's finish uh, not mocking his personal life, but talking okay. about, like you said, the immense period of service. He serves for 63 years and doesn't actually retire till he's in his 80s. He even has a civil war connection, doesn't he, for a man who started serving in 1798, you said?
0: He does. And even after the War of 1812, even after these two squadrons, he continues on with the Board of Navy Commissioners and administrative roles in the 1830s, He oversees the construction of the USS Pennsylvania, which is the largest ship of the line that the United States ever built. She was uh, set for 120 guns. She never got her full complement. But she's really the last of of her class, either here or the UK. In the 30s, uh, he introduces Lord Powerscourt and his cousin John Parnell to his daughter Delia. Delia tended to be a multi-generational name. Mm Mm-hmm and uh, they end up having a child Charles Stuart Parnell who is the,
1: We all know that name.
0: Yeah. So he's really <laughs> sticking it to the Brits for as long
1: as he okay, can. Okay, just quickly family. tell everyone who Charles Stuart Parnell is the, uh, if they the do uncr- the,
0: uncr- the uncrowned king of Ireland, he is the great the Irish patriot. It served in uh, in in parliament, so yeah i just didn't
1: want us to sound pretentious like last <laughs> week like oh everybody knows who he is <laughs> i know my mom would go never heard of him so i just, just that like was tre- for you mom yeah it's yeah. like
0: treasure who fought at waterloo right yeah we take the statue down yeah so in, in 1840 it's actually considered for the presidency of the united states which is very unusual no no captain or admiral in the united states navy to this date has become u.s president we've only had privates through generals, and only junior officers in the Navy for the, in the Cold War period. Uh, he bucks in 1844, essentially. They, they, he could have been the president in 1844. They offered James Knox Polk as his VP, and if they had combined forces, uh, he would have won. But Polk ends up becoming the nominee and winning the presidency. He's, uh, in 1842, he's president of the Court of Inquiry for the Summer's Mutiny, of course, the summer's named after his old friend. The summer's mutiny is the only officially recognized mutiny in U.S. Navy history. There have been some other incidents. There was one incident I'm thinking of in the Vietnam War uh, where uh, a gentleman was re- re- removed from command from his his uh, officers and medical officer. Um, he commands the Philadelphia Navy Yard until December 31st of 1861. By now, Lincoln has been uh, – uh, the, the election has happened – He's about to become president formally in March. And in March, he's still advising Lincoln on Fort Sumter. He says, you know, I'm as young as ever to fight for my country, I'm ready, which actually wouldn't have been beyond the norm in 1871 because his counterpart was General Winfield Scott, who had been a general since the War of 1812. We're talking 50 years. And Scott's the one who devised the strategy for winning the war against the South. In a, in a strange twist of history, Stewart had actually proposed to this uh, woman, Maria Mayo, in Norfolk, and she spurned him. She basically laughed him off. And then she laughed off Captain Winfield Scott, and then she laughed off Colonel Winfield Scott, and then she accepted General Scott. So when her friend said, oh, you finally married the captain, she says, no, I married the general. <laughs> So oh. Stuart continues on and he's he is uh he retires to Bordentown where he watches, you know, the troops coming back from Gettysburg or going off to war. But remains remains active and he dies at the age of ninety-one.
1: It's an amazing life and, lived, isn't it? Yeah, we,
0: we actually have his death mask here in the museum. We don't have it on display. We we displayed Nelson's death mask several years ago. He, we had it on loan. But uh, Stuart's, we, we have, and we've put it up on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. If you type in Charles Stuart Death's Mask, US, U.S. Naval Academy Museum, you'll see a quick video that I did about it.
1: Amazing. Um, if I was to say to you, just to end, um, what do you think his key contribution is to the history of the United States Navy? What would your answer be?
0: I think it was to the ultimate success of the War of 1812's naval strategy in putting the ships to sea. And secondly in training two generations of naval leaders for the mexican-american war and the the american civil war those were his greatest contributions
1: Uh, you have written a book about him haven't you so what is it called in case anyone wants to go and read we we get absolutely leveled by people now saying do you know how much money i've spent on books since you started this podcast but give him another one to go read
0: (laughs) sure uh this book i wrote 15 years ago it's called a call to the sea commodore charles sorry captain charles stewart of the uss constitution it was the first of uh six books i wrote so he's near and dear to me
1: brilliant thank you so much for coming on to share him with us as well because we quite quite naturally i suppose always gravitate towards the royal navy but um there's stories like that out there and thank you for bringing that one on thank
0: you so much alex i love the podcast and keep doing what you're doing
1: oh thank you Join us tomorrow when our science boffin, Kit Chapman, will be here to commemorate or to mark the day of the Trinity test. So the first atomic bomb being detonated, Uh, we'll be talking all about how it got to that point and how we thankfully managed to avoid setting them off all over the place. It's a really interesting talk and really good into the subject for people who aren't massively knowledgeable about the science side of things. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.